Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Greetings. An issue has come up that I wanted to discuss, and I didn't get a chance to discuss it with Anessa because I learned about it after Anessa and I had taped our segment that's going to be in the next part of our podcast today. What I learned about is a, a story that has made some of the papers about uh, a conflict between essentially uh, one of the networks that the Department of Defense funds and the far right. Uh, to provide some context for all of this, uh, we have long accepted that there's a culture crisis in the Canadian Armed Forces, that there was a culture of entitlement and a culture of misconduct and a culture of abuse of power, and it particularly affected women and historically excluded groups. We know about the purge of LGBTQ people from the military. We've had podcasts about that, for instance. And the military has been committed to changing its culture, that in the past, there have been folks who've benefited from discrimination and they rose to power and they then used their advantages to maintain the status quo. And we've lost multiple generals and admirals in the process the past few years because of their history of abusing power. Um, and so again, this government and this, and this military, including the now outgoing chief of defense staff, Wayne Eyre, have been committed to changing the culture. They set up a new command for professional conduct and culture, uh, led by Lieutenant General Jenny Carignan, who has been on the podcast, aiming at improving the culture to make the military more reflective of Canadian values and make the military, its personnel, more reflective of the Canadian public, uh, to be diverse, inclusive, and equitable. And there are people who have problems with this. And so I want to talk, spend a few minutes talking a bit about this. That what has happened has been that uh, the Department of National Defense set up the Mines Program, which the CDSN has been a beneficiary of, the mines mobilizing insights for defense and security. One of the nine networks they fund is the Transforming Military Culture uh, Network. And they're a group of scholars and former military people who have been working hard and trying to figure out how to constructively criticize the military and offer ideas about how they could change the culture of the armed forces. As one of their efforts, they produced a special issue of the journal Canadian Military Journal. Uh, the link will be in the show notes. And in that, they have a number of articles addressing the history of racism, sexism, misogyny, homophobia, and other forms of discrimination within the military. And one of the basic challenges that the military faces is it has long been institution dominated by white men, and they have tended to favor themselves. Not all of them, but enough of them to create a culture. Uh, 
of traditions that have been exclusive. So this special issue came out and it gave the attention of True North. True North is a bad faith actor. It proclaims itself to be maybe journalism, maybe a news source, but it's not. It's a propaganda uh, outlet for the far right, uh, for white supremacist organizations. It's a disinformation. It's a node of disinformation. And one of their tactics of, of this organization, as well as other organizations like it, is to not just point out efforts that are that uh, annoy them, but to target women and people from historically sort of groups who are seen as the leaders or the uh, poster children of these efforts uh, to encourage their followers to engage in harassment campaigns. And this is what has happened, that True North was very critical of the special issue. They wrote a variety of stuff. It's led to a variety of other people who are their friends and fellow, fellow travelers to write uh, a variety of pieces, including some in national newspapers, critical of the Transforming Military Cultures Network, critical of these people who are involved, uh, making in various claims that are accurate and actually quite wrong about who these people are. Now, part of this is there's a larger dynamic out there, which is that Canadians are borrowing from American and Hungarian efforts to fight the efforts to foster a more diverse and inclusive political system, society, and in this case, military. The reality is, is, yes, we can and should have a discussion about culture change. There's a variety of different strategies to follow. Uh, Louise Arbor uh, followed on from uh, Marie Deschamps to issue reports about how to improve the culture of the Canadian forces. Are all 48 recommendations the right ones? We can have a conversation about that and we can disagree about how best to change the culture to foster a more inclusive military, one that reflects who Canadians are and what they value. What doesn't work so well is trying to have a good faith discussion with people who claim to be anti-anti-racist. They see anti-racists as being the problem. Well, if you're an anti-racist, that makes some kind of sense. If you're anti-anti-racist, well, what are you fighting? What are you for? Well, it suggests that if you're anti-anti-racist, you're pro-racist. Uh, and we have in this country, like many other countries, uh, a rising far right that has gained permission, essentially, from a variety of political changes in, around the world, as well as the internet, to engage in more blatant, more aggressive incitement of hate and of violence. So the, the thing is, there are people who are upset. It challenges their identities, that they did something wrong when they were in the military. For instance, one of the loudest opponents to culture change happened to have married a subordinate while he was in the military. And now that, that is seen as a bad thing to marry, to prey upon, to uh, try to have sex with one subordinates. This obviously hurts his feelings, but he should suck it up because we know now better than we knew 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, that sex plus hierarchy can foster all kinds of stuff, including the entitlement, a sense of impunity, and really bad experiences for those subordinates, men and women alike. Uh, in the podcast today, Anessa and I do discuss the challenge that men have had in reporting sexual misconduct. That is that they have been the targets. And so it's not just a woman problem. It's a person problem. So why am I speaking about this? I'm speaking about it because I support what the TMC is trying to do. They're trying to provide a critical perspective on how we got here, 
And what we need to address the legacies of toxic masculinity and of white supremacy that still have fanboys out there resisting the effort to change the calf so that the military can recruit every Canadian, not just those who are historically most present, most influential, most entitled. I've also been vocal about the challenge that we face of white supremacy, of far-right ethnic nationalism, of white nationalism in our society, uh, and the threat it poses to our military. It's not something I've studied very closely in the specific case of Canada. I used to study ethnic conflict, ethnic politics. So a lot of the stuff I understand what's going on. And I think we need to be clear about what, what is going on. Which is, again, this news, this outlet, whatever you want to call it, not engaged in good faith journalism of trying to seek out the truth, despite the fact that it has true in its name. I think that's a bit of overcompensation. It's trying to incite. And we should try to limit their ability to do that. Which gets me to the second issue, which is one of the reasons why this has become a story is that the True North article was included in an, a Royal Canadian Navy news something that they included a link to the white supremacy website uh, addressing that outlet's perspective on the special issue. And I talked with a naval officer about this. I had an email conversation, I should say. And he basically said this was part of an effort to provide situational awareness about the stuff that's been written about the Navy, positive or negative. And I get that. But we need to be clear about what should be included in a news summary. Should the news summary be a platform for the propaganda disinformation campaigns put out by the far right? Would we include in a news summary statements ISIS makes about uh, some Canadian policy? Would we include in, in a news summary what Al-Qaeda says as a, in the news summary? In an intelligence analyst, sure. But in a news summary, I do think that Royal Canadian Navy needs to be aware, just like other services in Canada, needs to be aware of what the white supremacists are saying. But to put it in a news summary without any context, I think is problematic. And I think that we live in a time where a lot of people are not really, and a lot of institutions are not really prepared for what we're dealing with. And what we're dealing with are actors out there who are acting in bad faith. They want to erode confidence in institutions. They want to incite violence. They want to incite their listeners, their readers, to engage in harassment campaigns. We've seen, for instance, the swatting, that is calling the police to send their special forces, essentially, to the homes of those who are seen as problems, and that risks death and injury. We've seen a lot of harassment campaigns the past 10 years uh, or so via the internet. Uh, and so I think it's more important now than ever to have a conversation about how to best transform our culture, not just the military's culture, but our culture, so that way people can live safely and securely without fear of harassment campaigns. And I think we need to think carefully about who we platform and who we do not platform. I think the Navy has made a mistake in this case. I don't think it was a bad faith mistake. I think it was a good faith mistake, but I think we need to be clear about what belongs in the news summary, what entities are news organizations versus disinformation outlets.
And that's what I wanted to say today before we got into the podcast, because this stuff is too important not to talk about. Uh, thank you, and feel free to send me emails or otherwise get in contact with me to talk to me about this stuff or whatever else you want to talk have talked about on the podcast. I will, of course, be writing a bit about this on my blog and on other social media. Now, on to the conversation between me and Anessa about a variety of other issues, some related, some not quite so much. Welcome to episode 3.1, that is the first episode of our third season of Battle Rhythm. We developed the procedure of changing our seasons, not with the year, but with when we change the lineup. And so we're thanking Erin Gibson-Bronshot for her service as a host for well over two years. And we're adding two new co-hosts uh, in 2024, uh, Thomas Hughes, who used to be a postdoc for the CDSN, and Wendy Wong, who teaches at UBC Okanagan. Uh, so we'll talk more about them with them uh, when the time comes. But on today's episode, we have Anissa Kimball, who has been with us for quite a while, and she's now back from her European tour and is back to teaching, in fact. Yes, I'm back in lovely snow-covered Quebec City uh, on this uh, fine negative 11 degree morning. Um, and so I'm very, I'm excited to be back in Canada, back on the same time zone, although you're not on our time zone right now, Steve. Um, and so ready to jump into another year of battle rhythm. This year promises to, like always, have uh, lots of excitement. Um, and of course, we will be watching with some anticipation our southern neighbors with their elections, which just started uh, yesterday was the Iowa caucus. So we're ready to jump back into politics. Yes, we're talking on uh, January 16th, a Tuesday. I am currently in Japan on a uh, ski trip. Uh, with my sister and her boyfriend and her boyfriend's kids. So, uh, and that's what we bring, be bringing the energy because I am exhausted from going through lots more snow than you are receiving. Uh, we got a dump yesterday, and so I was skiing and falling into big holes of snow. But we should, speaking of snow, uh, let's let's talk about the first bit of news, which is since our last broadcast, in fact, just this past week, we had an announcement that Sweden is going to provide a major contingent to our brigade in Latvia. That is the Canadian Brigade, Multinational Brigade. Uh, we've been moving from a battle group of about 1,000 to a brigade, which is somewhere between three and 5,000 troops. Uh, Trudeau announced last summer that we're going to improve, increase the size of our force from roughly 800 to 2,200. And so this means that uh, we'll still outnumber everybody else. But the Swedes are going to be providing a lot of capability. So since you've been wandering around all these NATO countries, and while Sweden is not quite yet an official member of NATO, thanks to Turkey's opposition, uh, this is big news for NATO, big news for Canada, big news for Latvia. What's your reaction to all this madness? My take on this is that this is good news. Um, you know, uh, in fact, when I started my European trip, I landed in Sweden um, at the conference that CIPRI holds, uh, their International Peace Research Institute. And I also had the opportunity, uh, as you know, Sweden joining, joining NATO, they were interested in my book. Um, and so I had the opportunity to give a book talk as well uh, to their Foreign Ministry and Defense Academy, um, my book Beyond 2%. And so we, we actually spoke quite a bit about uh, Sweden and 
Canadian cooperation, and I had spoken with them about uh, Sweden's potentially um, contributing to, to Canada's commitment there uh, in Latvia. Um, and I think that this is great news for Canada because um, on the one hand, one could see it as, yes, we are adding another country to the Canadian group, which is already the country that the, the group which has the most partners. Um, but on the other hand, it's very clear that Sweden is a very capable country and it will be more of a security provider uh, in some senses. And this may actually help Canada um, to collaborate with others. And for sure, um, you know, that Arctic uh, relation, that Arctic link is extremely important. Um, and so I see this as a, as a good Sign um, for these uh, Nordic uh, Canadian relations. Oh, absolutely. Uh, when we first started this mission, we ended up getting a lot of spits and pieces from very small countries and very small militaries that don't have a lot of experience and capability. And now we have Sweden, which is contributing a battalion of some size, so somewhere between 600 and 1,000 troops, probably more like 800. And that's quite significant as opposed to like 25 folks from Albania. 30 folks from Montenegro. Um, and this is also good news because when they announced, the level, one of the big decisions lately has not only been to increase the size of each con, uh, NATO mission in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Poland, enhanced for presence, they also announced uh, to have similar missions running in four other countries that are close to Russia. So that would be, if I want to get this right, Slovakia, Slovenia, Bulgaria, and uh, Romania. And mm -hmm. that, that was important because we had Slovenes and Slovaks in our contingent, and they might not be able to hang out with us any longer because they have to go back and be part of the contingents elsewhere. And it means that those other contingents elsewhere are also going to be demanding allies to help them out. So we got a good draft pick. Uh, and uh, so it should make things easier for us to reach our various goals, for the, not only the size of the force, but it's ability to do stuff that is ability to prepare for war. Exactly, exactly. And of course, I also, since I was recently in the Czech Republic, I'd like to give props to the Czechs, which are also in the Canadian group. Um, they are contributing um, a, a, a light armored group there. So, uh, and actually the Czechs are present in three different locations of enhanced forward presence. And so I think that that's interesting because it speaks very much to the fact that those countries feel this security threat extremely strongly. Um, and so uh, the Swedes joining Canada up there in Latvia is good news. And uh, I think that this is also good news for, um, you know, further Canadian Swedish relations. Uh, we have seen um, this kind of deepening of relations over the last few years in Canada with increasingly active uh, exchanges between our embassies. Um, you know, so I think that this is uh, overall, this is good. This is Canada showing a little bit of leadership and attracting um, a little bit of support from the Swedes. So this is good for NATO. Yes, and it was something that was rumored and hoped for when I was in Latvia last summer, but there were no guarantees. Uh, so this is good that this could happen. Uh, so always nice to have a bit of good news because usually in battle rhythm we talk about the bad news, which is where we're going to go to next, which is there was a report of uh, one of the things that came out in our since we've last talked is that more men are reporting sexual misconduct in the military. And in the story, um, Lieutenant General Karen, you know, makes the point that this is both good news and bad news. It's good news because it suggests people are more comfortable reporting. It's bad news and it shows that the crimes are still happening. So this was a, a different report than what we've been usually ha having because most of the sexual misconduct reporting 
hasn't been about women being uh, the targets of sexual misconduct, uh, even though the class action suit uh, that was settled a, a few years ago was being paid out last year uh, involved a significant number of men uh, being part of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that this this speaks to the fact that um, we are seeing people use the system that is in place. And so, you know, this means that, of course, you know, and in a kind of following a functionalist logic, um, then this is a good thing because it means that they have developed something that has been, you know, ha that people have found as an outlet for reporting these things. Of course, the bad thing is that you know, this also suggests that um, there are still toxic individuals uh, in the military in leadership positions. And and, um, you know, I think that uh, this goes to point to the fact that when you look at that uh, independent external review, uh, the Arbor report that had some 48 recommendations, we are still very far to go when it goes to uh, implementing all of those recommendations. Um, some of them are in progress. None of them have been implemented fully except for a handful. Um, and so, you know, I think that uh, this is a continuing uh, process that will that needs to go on, um, but it's also clear that we haven't we haven't figured it out quite yet. Um, if we're still having high numbers of reporting, increased reporting, we don't know really how this reflects compared to the past because we don't really know how many people had been victims, how many men had been victims in the past, uh, because reporting was always limited. So maybe we're getting better data. Maybe we don't. Maybe there's just more stuff going on. It's hard to tell. But it points to that toxic masculinity is not only bad for women, but it's bad for men, too, that the men are the victims of toxic environments where men uh, feel in entitled uh, to uh, assault men as well as women. So it's part of the same problem, although they're not identical problems. Um, and I'm not sure how much of the Arbor Report really touches on this. Uh, I, the focus of the various recommendations, some of them are very specific, some are a little more general. Uh, I don't think it speaks as clearly as it could to that, the thing that I just mentioned, which is toxic masculinity. How do you, we talk about culture change. What is the culture we're changing? And sometimes I think people are afraid to name the thing that is out there, that is, that is the culture, that is, that is the problem. Uh, they talk, you know, we focus on bits and pieces of it, but the idea that the way we define what a good man is has uh, created all kinds of problems, not just for women, but again, for men. Yeah. I think it's also the challenge that, um, you know, there are the two the two kind of images or identities. You have the identity of the leader and then you have this identity of a warrior. Right. Um, and a good leader can take those things that are about the aggressiveness of the warrior. Right. And turn them into assets. But a bad leader somehow cannot do that. And the aggressiveness becomes this ugliness and this abuse and all of that. Um, and so I think it's also kind of struggling with how do you you draw this line a bit? Um, and I honestly, I think it also has to do with, in some sense, a screening. I don't think that um, these people come out of the dark. You know, I think that there could be a lot more of, um, you know, finding and sorting some of these individuals earlier. Um, and I don't think that there's very much of that type of focus in terms of going on. Um, and so um, it, it goes to show that 
uh, Jenny Carrington does not Janine Carrington does not have an easy job uh, in this position because there's frankly crises coming you know uh, on a monthly basis uh, and for a position that you know some people might have said um, you know was was a little bit of a, a sidestep from having been in an, an active combat condition uh, position leading uh, in Iraq you can see that this position is clearly demanding of a lot of leadership um, but in a very different way um, than we have seen otherwise I get yeah I, I agree with the basic sentiment but I, I would push back a little bit on the notion that it's 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 a leadership thing uh, because it's you know, it's not just that we're getting bad apples who are getting promoted, which is a case, something that has been a problem, as we saw from all the generals who have uh, been disgraced, but, and admirals, I should say, not to mention the admirals. But it's also about how, what they're, you know, what is the environment that perpetuates itself uh, at, for instance, Royal Military College? We're only now hearing reports that the review committee that was supposed to assess Royal Military College is now getting underway. Um, it really doesn't take that long to strike a committee. So this, the fact that it's taken this long is, is, is puzzling. And I've heard discussions about whether the makeup of that committee suggests that it will be less than critical about the way things ha uh, currently exist at the Royal Military College. But that's where the culture gets created. It gets, it's where it gets replicated and reindoctrinated. Um, and so it's, it's a key spot because these leaders that you're talking about get taught things uh, and, and have expectations and senses of entitlement that are bred there more than any place else. Uh, so if you want to change the culture of the calf, you want to have the good leaders being able to build on the positive aspects of masculinity, not the negative aspects. It's got to start with not just selecting the right people, but then uh, having an environment in which their initial training their initial doctrine, the initial education um, doesn't reinforce the patterns of the past. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that this, um, you know, the review of the military colleges and the professional, the defense professional education institutions is going to be something that a lot of us in the defense and security uh, community will be watching um, to, to see, you know, the seriousness of it, what types of recommendations they bring, um, what type of what timetable for kind of implementing these things. Um, and uh, and so I think that this uh, the challenge is not going going away. It's one of many continuing challenges um, for, our, for our armed forces. Um, and uh, the I think one of the the unfortunate but necessary things is that um, um, it's it's uh, it's come to a crisis point where there is no other option um, but uh, trying to move ahead, make headway uh, and move forward with uh, changing the institution, changing the culture, um, and hopefully being able to support the members of the military um, who have experienced these abuses um, in, in better ways um, while they're in the military and once they have left the military. Well, this, this does lead to our third topic, which is uh, we've had le better leadership of, of late. We, the General Wayne Ayer has been much more willing to listen to take criticism and to build upon it and to work with the civilians involved. And he just announced that he's retiring in the summer, which is about right. That is that chiefs of defense staff usually serve three years. 
and this will be the end of his third year. Uh, so it, it was due. We are due for a change. But one of the challenges is how do leaders make sure that the changes they've made last beyond their own uh, their own time in office? So uh, he's put in place a lot of changes, but the CDS has lots of power, so a new CDS can just undo them. Uh, and so it'll be on the next CDS to uh, support the, the changes that have worked, revise the changes, revise the, the efforts that haven't been so functional, uh, and figure out new ways of doing things because these kinds of problems require attacks from a lot of different angles. So when exactly. you when you heard that Wayne Air stepped down, what were your thoughts? Um, I mean, uh, of course, uh, you know, like most of the community, I think we we had been somewhat anticipating it, if not um, a little with, um, you know, um, some trepidation, I would say, because I think the the main challenge is that um, it's hard to see um, who a successor would be and ensure that that person is going to keep this same momentum and maintain a lot of the things that they have done. Um, it's going to be uh, just asking somebody to jump into a job, which is already um, a, a position that has a high level of stress and demand on it. We have large expenditures coming up for our military, um, uh, you know, not the least of which um, include uh, NORAD modernization, uh, which is going to be very important, I think, in the in the short to near term. Those decisions have to start to be made in those processes. The the, the procurement has to be started to for you know essentially um, because this is a, a demand and a requirement that the U.S. has committed to um, with the United States, uh, and so I think that uh, it will be interesting to see who the the next person is that's going to kind of fill that position you know um i uh i think that um it will also be interesting to see how this person works with our defense minister now who has several months under his belt um and you know we we have been adjusting to that i think uh, in some senses the the new individual this person has taken you know a little while to get uh, get going but you know as as these kind of personal rotations obviously there is a little bit of loss of efficiency information and so uh, we want to make sure that uh, the machine keeps rolling so that uh, the ministry of defense can continue to do its essential tasks for canada well uh, at a recent event uh wayne air uh was actually a city send book launch he noted something he had said before to me, which is that he did not get a handover. That is, he he found out that he was to be chief defense staff hours before he became acting chief of defense staff. He had no preparation. Usually the preceding, the outgoing CDS spends a fair amount of time with the incoming one to prepare them to do the job. And so obviously this announcement uh, happening in January for a summer uh, changeover gives plenty of time to do help that person whoever is chosen to develop to, to get the briefings to 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 go to meetings alongside air to have lots of conversations with air about what he has learned over the past three years uh about all kinds of things uh about the actors in nato who's more reliable who's less reliable who's easy to deal with who's hard to work with uh, how does civilian control of the military work in Canada? Because I don't think a lot of people understand it. I think a lot of people who are supposed to be doing it don't understand it. Uh, like, for instance, you mentioned Bill Blair, uh, not by name, but our Minister of Defense. Does he really understand how civilian control of the military works? Uh, 
There's a professor at Carleton, I hear, who'd be willing to give him a lesson or two. Uh, he has not reached out, uh, which is different from the previous Minister of Defense. Uh, as far as I understand, Bill Blair has not reached out to any of any of the major uh, experts in the in the academic defense and security community. Whereas Anita, this is also what I've heard. <laughs> yeah, whereas Anita Anand did so quite readily, uh, not just with me, but with lots of other much smarter people, um, and uh, so it'll be interesting to see uh, the the choice who has chosen to do this. One of the challenges is that a lot of a lot of senior leadership was sort of driven out of the military by uh, Vance, John Vance, because he didn't want to be replaced. Uh, and his unending tour of duty, you know, he ended up doing it for about six years, meant that a lot of capable people left because they didn't see this as a, being a possibility. Uh, Ayer has said that he has already been preparing the road for this by uh, it, having many of the two and three star officers uh, in the Canadian Armed Forces be exposed to working with Parliament, being exposed to working with the Cabinet, being exposed to all the kinds of things he has to deal with on a regular basis. So that way, whoever gets chosen will have had a background of experience even before this sort of next three, four, five months of um, uh, you know handover begins. Now, of course, two questions come up. One is, who's going to get chosen? And the second one is, how long is it going to take for Trudeau to make the choice? Uh, it is Trudeau's job to make that choice with, uh, with the advice of Bill Blair. Uh, he often takes a really long time to make these decisions, I think, would behoove uh, this government to make this decision sooner rather than later to give that individual more preparation. Plus, also, it affects all of posting season because whoever gets chosen this job has to be they have to be replaced in that position, and that replace that that leads to a, a set of dominoes, where all kinds of positions will change in order to to fill the people who are filling the positions that are replacing those people who have been moved up. Uh, it might you might see some retirements among some of the three star officers who realize that being a CDS is not going to be in their future. Uh, so you might see some rotation there as well. Uh, but uh, Anessa, do you have any guesses on, on to who the CS might be? I, I've played this game before with previous co-hosts. I think Stephanie Von Lucky and I had a, a played this game out uh, several years ago. Oh, um, good lord! I am definitely not the person to be guessing that. Okay. <laughs> you would have much better luck with other folks. <laughs> well, the cast of characters that people tend to focus on. Let me pop up on my screen. Uh, the, the the sort of the list of candidates, it's it's it usually it's going to be the current three star officers. They they can reach down and get a two star officer, uh, to do it. Uh, but uh, that would mean jump having some people being jumped over. So, uh, you know the the usual get you know, the standard possibilities would be whoever is currently the vice chief, whoever is currently uh. Commander Joint Operations Command, whoever's head of the Navy, whoever's head of the Army and the Air Force. Uh, some other three star positions are uh, uh, currently the acting chief of military personnel, such uh, uh, Lieutenant Lieutenant General uh, Brunel, uh, and of course somebody we already mentioned, uh, which is uh, General Carignan. Uh, I think betting mm -hmm. mark. Betting well, I mean, markets, um, obviously. Yeah, in Quebec, I think one of the, um, the 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 favorites that folks would suggest would be Justin Paul, who is now the head of the army. 
um, who is an indigenous person. Yes, he's one candidate. And I think that would probably be the first time the CDS. I would say that uh, my best guess would probably be uh, Jocelyn Paul, who is who's been commanding the army, who has also been, um, I would say, a little bit on a, a charm offensive, we'll say, uh, giving lots of talks across Canada. Um, to me, this also signals somebody who is, um, uh, you know, maybe being prepared uh, as he's getting, you know, to kind of send this person so they become more well-known, one might say, across the various kind of state regional stakeholders. Uh, that would be one person that I would put up there. Um, and then, of course, another person that um, uh, we've both met, um, um, you know, I, I don't know, uh, but I think obviously Admiral Topshi is another person that I have a, a, an enormous respect for, who I've spoken to a bunch, um, who I think would be an excellent leader. Uh, yes, although Topshi has gotten in hot water lately because he issued a, a video for his command, that is the Navy, that was fairly critical of the state of play. Uh, so I, 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 I've met Topshi. I think I've had some good conversations with him. Uh, I think you're missing one of the obvious uh, candidates, uh, a woman who's we've mentioned several times in the podcast, which is uh, Jenny Karen is, is very, also uh, very much a possibility. Uh, but we have no idea. We have no real inside information about the likelihoods. We're just guessing based on backgrounds, who's comfortable in the public, who has a good sense of uh, of uh, the standing of things, who the government, who the, the not the government, who the current government in power, the reigning party, might see as politically advantageous. Picking a, a francophone would be a, partly a move to, to appeal to Quebec. Picking a woman might be one way for Trudeau to try to resurrect his tattered credentials as a, a feminist prime minister. Uh, uh, it could, you know, uh, if you want to make, say that culture change is really important, then having, you know, the person who's been in charge of the the command of, of professional conduct and culture, make that person head of the military. That would be a very strong signal to send. Uh, my guess is that Air only made this announcement after having already consulted with the deputy minister and the defense minister. Uh, so this didn't, I'm sure, did not come as a surprise to the prime minister. But I do think that this prime minister does dither. So I can't expect that we'll hear anything too soon, but maybe I'll, we'll be surprised. I was surprised by other recent decisions that seem to be uh, more aggressive than I might have expected, such as choosing to buy the F uh, the P8, which is something we talked about the last time we were on the podcast together. So uh, maybe we'll see a quicker decision. I've just been become very pessimistic about this government's investment in defense policy. Which I think is extremely reasonable, given what we have observed uh, into this third mandate of this government. <laughs> well, I think that will cover it. Uh, I want to do want to apologize to our listeners if we have some technical difficulties with the sound. We'll, we'll try to fix as much of that in uh, post-production as possible. Uh, so before we leave you, we wanted to highlight that our interview segment this week is with uh, Brigadier uh, General uh, Arrington. I met him at KCIS uh, this fall. He is the director of uh, general of plans at the strategic joint staff. So he plays a major role in helping the military coordinate and make this uh, plans about future efforts. Not all plans become policy, but you can't have policy with some plan plans and some ideas. And so 
we had a very interesting conversation. And so that's going to be our interview segment that will take place after I thank you, Anessa, for kicking off the new year, uh, kicking off season three point, uh, kicking off season three, uh, talking trans specifically with me in Japan and you back at Laval. Uh, glad to have you back uh, in Canada, and I'm sure your students are looking forward to starting class today. Absolutely. I'm glad to be back in Canada again. Always uh, very pleased to kick off a new season of Battle Rhythm in a new year. Um, and uh, as always, uh, I am I am thankful for the uh, interesting discussion, the debate, and um, I wish you a wonderful day over there uh, uh, in Japan. Or actually, a wonderful evening because you're... <laughs> I'm just hoping to get a good night's worth of sleep. I've, I've not been sleeping that great, but hopefully I'll, ah. I'll adjust it by now. Anyway, uh, thanks to you and uh, listeners. Uh, look forward to hearing from some new co-hosts uh, in the new year. Uh, and if you've got ideas for the podcast, including people we should be talking to in terms of our interviews, let us know. And maybe we'll be able to persuade uh, Wayne Aaron to come back on after he's a civilian where he might be able to talk a little more frankly. Uh, anyway, uh, have a good week and uh, enjoy the snow. Oh, yeah. You too. Enjoy the skiing. Sleep well. Thanks. Good afternoon. Today we're talking with Brigadier General John Arrington, who is he's the Director General of Plans of the Strategic Joint Staff, which is a poorly understood part of the Canadian Armed Forces. And so we thought we'd have him on today to talk both about the SJS itself and its role in coordinating domestic emergency operations. Uh, we have a lot of those things over the past few years. Climate change suggests that we're going to have a lot more in the future. So I'm assuming that you've been pretty busy the past uh, little while in that position. Absolutely. It's been a busy year and a half in this position and job, but it, it keeps me out of trouble and, and certainly aware of what's going on in the Canadian Armed Forces in order to support the chief and, and Canadian citizens. So before we get into the details of domestic operations, can you just tell us a little bit about the strategic joint staff, and what your job is there? Yeah, sure. Thanks. First of all, I'd like to say, Steve, thanks for having me here today. It's a very much appreciated the opportunity to talk to practitioners and academics and all your listeners out there. So I very much appreciate this opportunity to be able to uh, talk a little bit about what we do in order to support the chief and uh, and Canadians themselves. So I'm Director General Plans at the Strategic Joint Staff. My boss is the director of all the staff. He is like the CEO, uh, civilian equivalent or, or uh, chief of staff to the CDS for, for general operations. And we, we do a lot of interaction with our whole government partners, other departments and agencies all around the national capital region uh, on behalf of the government. So we've got Director General Ops, Plans, Strategic Effects and Readiness, and a director general support. So we try and chop up our responsibilities to be able to react to uh, the ever-changing dynamics in the world and what's going on domestically as well. Excellent. And your job for plans is, is that the one-year plans, five-year plans, 10-year plans? So most of the files that I end up working on are all about memorandums to cabinet and authorities for extensions. So whether that could be a few weeks out for extension of an ongoing mission, domestic or international, to possibly a year 
or so out. It's director general plans for those in military parlance. I'm kind of like a three, five operational plans in the middle. We do have a longer term strategic planner. Uh, when I hear about plans, I can't help but think about all the plans that various countries had in like the 1920s and 30s for the various wars they could have. Like the United States had plans for a war with Europe, a war with Germany, a war with Britain, a war with Japan, a war with Canada. They all have different colored names. Would those war plans be also under your bailiwick? Well, I, I think the thing, technology is what it is and things are uh, changing so much that yes, we have some off the shelf plans, but realistically, if there's an ongoing operation, we take our standing plans or contingency plans, mm -hmm. uh, review the current situation and see how it needs to be updated. Mm -hmm. So year by year, if there's a new phenomenon or something happens that we weren't really expecting, let's just say the balloons that happened this year, <laughs> then sure. we didn't have we didn't have a process for it. We didn't have a plan for it. So therefore we observe the situation, take some lessons learned, deal with it when we can. And now we start making contingency plans. So if something like that were to happen again, we're better prepared. Excellent. So when it comes to domestic operations, the first question, I guess, that is, is having been in the military for a while, probably a couple of decades, I assume that you've been involved in a number of domestic operations. What are some operations you've been on within Canada and what are the big lessons that you learned along the way? Well, thanks for asking that question. You know what? 34 quick years so far in the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, and, and I tell you, at every rank level and position, I've had a different experience with domestic operations. So, I mean, easily as a lieutenant and captain uh, at the tactical level, it, it was great to be out in the field and respond to Canadians beyond an operation, whether it be the floods in Winnipeg, fires in Lillooet, BC as a, as a young captain when my boss was uh, Major Wayne Air. And then as a lieutenant colonel, I did some floods in Southern Alberta. Alberta in 2013 as a commanding officer, went into Medicine Hat and tried to help out as many Canadians there as I could. And it's funny because I did an interview right after we did that quick mission and said it was a pleasure to help uh, those in Medicine Hat, neighbors, fellow Canadians, and my parents had lived in Medicine Hat. So it was uh, it was great to, to direct. So, you know, being a tactical person individually on the ground, it's great. As I moved up in rank and institution and positions and, and in my current position as Director General plans. And my previous job as chief of staff of operations in the army, you see the trade-offs. Every time you get called out for an operation, yeah, it's great tactically. It makes you feel good as a soldier, but what are you not doing? What are you not getting ready for? In fact, when we deployed in 1997 to Winnipeg, the battle group I was working with at the time, we were on pre-deployment training to go over to Bosnia and we got diverted. So it's a, it was a perfect case in point early in my career where we're taking off international readiness preparation tasks in order to do something domestically. And so, you know, it's one thing that I would caution. It, it, it feels good to help Canadians and be out there, but it's maybe not fit for purpose. And I know that there's uh, several debates out there. The chief of defense staff and the minister both made their perspective clear that the more often we're called out, there's trade-offs. There's second order effects to this. And uh, I've certainly felt it as I work in the national capital region and, and here in the, the headquarters. Yeah, so that is a major debate that we're having these days about priorities and trade-offs. But uh, the bright side is when you're you're responding to a domestic emergency, you've probably saved more Canadian lives doing that kind of stuff than you know whatever we're doing in Bosnia or whatever we're doing in Ukraine or Latvia or any of our foreign deployments. So while maybe the day job is perceived as being these uh, you know war and preparing for war, preparing for peacekeeping operations, and you know 
helping other countries with their capabilities. On the, on the flip side of it, this this is the way that the Canadian public sees the military is, is helping out at home, and it makes a real big dent, a real big difference at home. So it, I understand the challenge of the trade-offs, but it's it's also a, a really yeah. positive impact here at home. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, and it, it feels good. I, I know that you're supposed to be posing the questions to me and me responding, but I throw a question back out there to all the academics and practitioners is we're built for purpose to win Canada's wars, defend the nation and, and defend our, our national strategic interest. We're the only ones that are equipped and trained and ready mm -hmm. to do that. Whereas there's several people that could <laughs> and are trained to respond to domestic operations, especially when you look at how domestic operations should work from the municipal to the provincial to the federal level and resourced accordingly. So it does feel good, but we need to find that careful balance. And I think that's what the message is, mm. is to make sure that we're not depleting those resources as well. You know, putting it out there, uh, you know, we've talked before and, and I'm big on perspective. Every two different people can look at a problem from mm. a different angle and both be correct. Several oh. people can look at a problem and all be correct. Yeah, the way I look at it, to be blunt, is I understand what the way the world should be, but I also understand the way the world is. And given the disincentives the provinces have to invest in, in this stuff and the difficulty it would take to actually create a new federal agency, which would require renegotiating everything with all the provinces, it seems, you know, you guys are stuck. And I realize that you guys are stuck for the, for the medium term, maybe somewhere down the road the logjam between the feds and the provinces can fix this. But until you guys start actually handing handing provinces bills for the services you render, they're probably going to continue to think that, hey, it's much better to call you guys so they don't have to pay the price. I mean, I'll always be semi-astonished, but also impressed that the provinces, you know, Quebec and Ontario are like, hey, you're reporting about how we uh, had all this abuse in our elder care facilities, but please stay anyway, because at least it's saving us money because we don't have to pay the nurses and staff of these elder care facilities at the outset of the pandemic. I mean, that, that was a really strange combination of what they're inside were and their priorities compared to what they what they should be but you can't comment on that because <laughs> you can't comment on what the provinces are doing but I, I, I can since i've got tenure well yeah, well played you know as always you're correct in your position and everything you say and you know from a strategic joint staff and a canadian armed forces perspective we will be ready yeah. we know that we're not in an environment we are going to be called so we'll be ready to react how we're asked from canadians our government and of course, our politicians, you know, as a strategic planner, I try and take a step back and look at it from different viewpoints mm -hmm. and look at the problem set. And, you know, even if I look from a, a mayor's perspective or a premier, of course, they're going to ask for Canadian Armed Forces support. If they don't, they actually get scrutinized. Why didn't you ask for the military sooner? So the expectation mm -hmm. is actually that if you don't ask, you have to respond to those questions. You know, from the local and provincial responders, if they get overwhelmed, you know, they're asking the same questions. So there's no doubt there is a lot of pressure for us to go and do it. And until there is some sort of organization that can fill that gap, you're right, the phone's going to keep ringing. And hopefully collectively, as, as a whole of government, we can we can solve this pressure because it's it's on the backs of a lot of sailors, aviators, and soldiers to balance multiple things, mm -hmm. let alone uh, every summer. Well, you mentioned summer and you mentioned planning. I guess I one thing is I wonder is there are some kinds of disasters that are pretty predictable and some that are not. For instance, have you guys figured out, you know, forecasts for flooding seasons so that way you can anticipate that at least for floods, you can build that into your training schedules and your deployment schedule. So, you know, okay, every, you know, this April, it's going to be pretty obvious that this part of the country is going to need our help. So that division will be asked to do something later or earlier. So that way 
in April will be free from other obligations. Do you guys do that kind of planning? Well, I won't say free from other obligations. We absolutely do that planning, but it's not as simple as as stop doing everything else to divert people onto this. But absolutely in the summertime when we're expecting potential of fires, springtime and floods, and then runoffs, you know, ready duty ships, aircraft, and immediate response units within the Army all step up, ramp up during those time periods because it's known windows. You can look at historical precedents. Mm build your contingency plans and do that. What's thrown a loop into it a little bit is the unprecedented numbers last year. I mean, the fires across the nation, the number of days, the duration, you know, I I mean, the team put out a whole bunch of stats for me here, but, you know, a couple thousand, 2,135 people uh, deployed last year. Person days was over 67,000 and it was unprecedented, threefold compared to normal historical norms. So you can you can plan for that, but yeah. you need a lot of flexibility in that plan because Mother Nature's got a, vo- a, a vote. So, given that some stuff is unpredictable, you know, you don't, you know, ice storms don't happen every year. The storm that ravaged British Columbia a few years ago did a better job of cutting off Vancouver from the rest of the country than potentially a first strike by the Chinese or the Russians or North Korea or whatever. I guess the, the one of the questions I have is each emergency requires a different mix of provinces and municipalities and all the rest of it. Given that most of the responses are local, that is, it's the division out west that does it, or it's the division in Ontario that does most of the work for a, an Ottawa flood. Is it part of your job to coordinate and see if the lessons are learned so that way people learn how to respond, you know, last year's fires out in one place help to inform the response in this year's fires in a different place? Because it seems to me that a lot of the responses are, even when it's military involved, are local. It's a local unit doing the response. But is it your branch that's responsible for figuring out what worked and then figuring out how to plan for the future? So ironically, in my current job, I'm the strategic planner, so I don't get into that level of detail. Mm-hmm. Our operational command does it, but in, in previous jobs that I've had, I've certainly, whether as chief of staff of the Army, even as a captain and a major, and army headquarters staffs when I was out west and, and in a different region. You do those lessons learned and prepare. So those detailed plans are worked at all kinds of levels so that we can incorporate it in year after year. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, especially when you talk about using local units, we do, especially in the army, try and do that as much as possible because there's familiarity with mm-hmm. Uh, the whole government partners, you know, in an emergency situation, you don't want to show up and meet someone for the first time. So the connective tissue and the relationships that you have with provincial and local authorities, uh, let alone other emergency management departments, is gold. So as we built that those relationships up over the years and built plans together, you want ideally your forces from that region to link in so there's familiarity of working. So, General, tell me how that does this work when uh, weather happens, when when earthquakes happen, whenever something happens in Canada, what's the process by which you guys end up getting involved? Actually come to understand the process a lot more as I've uh, changed jobs throughout my career. You know, as easy as a, as a captain to just go out there and respond to it. But but now I've started to understand throughout and, and I even uh, don't go out and read it, but my master's thesis was on <laughs> emergency management, very poorly written years ago, but, but still got me through. But it was very clear and obvious to me that the responsibility starts at the municipal and local level for emergency preparedness. And once it exceeds their resources, goes to the provincial level. If it exceeds their resources, goes to the federal level. And then from there, they would ask for requests for assistance through the National Defense Act from minister to minister. 
So we're prepared for that. We understand that process, but we do also understand that the pressure for politicians and practitioners to make that phone call right away, perhaps before all of the other resources are expended. And there is pressure on folks to, to go ahead and do that. So once we get that request for assistance, it screams up. It can happen very quickly. The director of staff will make uh, recommendations, synchronize it with our operational command. And, and while we are preparing to respond, our minister will do that authorization through, through the, the process and the signatories to allocate Canadian Armed Forces assets to another department to help out in the emergency management process. Somebody asked me this week, this reminds me, does the military ever say no? The military will always be prepared to do it. It's up to the ministers and the politicians to say no. So there are, there are some cases where it's inappropriate. And we outline recommendations, mm -hmm. but it's not the military's position to say yes or no. It's ours to put options on the table mm -hmm. and say, here's what we can do. Here's our recommendation. So let me rephrase the question. Does the minister often say no? Does rarely say no? Ever say no? In an emergency situation, floods and fires, it would be pretty rare to say no. But there's, there's three different types of requests that can go out. And one is the floods, fires process that I just described. Another one is assistance to law enforcement, which has mm. a much higher legal threshold <laughs> and uh, for obvious reasons. And, and then there's a third one that is actually provisions of service that is actually at the local level. And sometimes that's armories and capabilities and other things. So a lot of times when we do our analysis and recommendations, it will include does the capability exist somewhere else? Are we taking jobs away from the province or the municipality that is in place? For example, years ago when I was doing some, some fires out west, we were working alongside uh, the BC forestry business and, you know, we want to put the fire out as fast as possible and get home and move on to other things. And this is just in conversation. It's their job and their livelihood. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not saying they don't want to put the fire out. What I'm saying is that when we come in and take over as firefighters and they haven't exceeded their capacity, sometimes we could be taking jobs away from them, which is not in the best interest of Canadians mm -hmm. and employment and economic recovery, et cetera. So those things always need to be considered, but I understand there is pressure from the media, local citizens and, and the politicians that, hey, why didn't you call out the military right away? It doesn't go over so well to say, well, because the forestry folks had it in hand, it may not play out very well in the media. Yeah, well, it's one of the challenges in all this stuff is, is that these things are complex and it's easy for somebody to, to make noise about it. But it seems to me that I guess you part of your answer is that the minister always says almost always says yes, but it might be yes, but or yes, and will help. But we're not going to send you everything you need or everything you want because you can't always get everything you want. But you just get everything that you need to misquote a classic song. The military advice that the chief of defense staff gives the minister will always outline, you know, his professional assessment on, you know, here's the trade-offs. Here's what it means. Here's what we can and can't do. And then decisions are made. I do remember once uh, years ago, I won't, I won't say the, the, the time and place, but I was in an influential position in dealing with this type of, of thing. And I, I was in my boss's office and it flashed up on the news that uh, such and such a city and province had requested Canadian Armed Forces support. 20 minutes before that, I was on the phone with them and they were not requesting it. They announced it on the news and that's how we found out about it. So uh, needless to say, we did get the ticker tape changed and within uh, the formal request for assistance did come out with recommendations and we did help out. But quite often it, it happens so quickly in an emergency situation that people will get ahead of themselves and say, yes, we're asking for the military when they didn't actually ask yet. 
obviously there's a lot of discussion about the fog of war, but there's also, a, I guess, a fog of domestic operations as well for some of the same reasons that things are moving very quickly. There's a lot of different actors in the space with different views of what's going on. And, and so it generates a lot of noise that is hard to figure out what's going on. Yeah, the great thing is everybody's trying to do the right thing for the right reason. And, and that's the bottom line is to help out Canadians and citizens. Excellent. And so I guess that's the key is the relationship. So you're working with provinces. You're working with cities, you're working with uh, reserves. I guess one of the questions I have is, it seemed that last summer, and I've heard elsewhere that a lot of times evacuation seems to be the first thing, not the first thing, but one of the major responsibilities. From your perspective as someone who's done this stuff over the course of 30 plus years, is there a way we can try to, to make that a last, last, last resort that we're not evacuating people as often? Because that's still very disruptive. Well, I mean, the decision to evacuate, I believe, is local authorities to do so. Mm-hmm. From a Canadian Armed Forces perspective, you know, the num- number one priority is to save lives. Yes. So if, if lives are going to be at risk or potentially at risk, it's better to do that evacuation and sort it out after mm-hmm. than, you know, get cut off. When you look at the, the fires uh, that happened up in, in the north and when they uh, did all the evacuations in, in the Northwest Territories, you know, the risk there of being cut off was significant. And so being able to use our aircraft to evacuate those from hospitals that couldn't evacuate on their own, you know, that that's going to be a number one priority. If you, if it talks about saving Canadians lives, then then that's what we're all about. If we can help out with infrastructure and other things, that's great. But saving Canadians is number one. Absolutely. And that's why it should be. And it's really not the military's job to make sure that we improve the infrastructure of, of, of the reserves other places in the north so that way these people have you know more than one choice of live or die stay or you know leave stay or leave hopefully we can do a better job of providing better infrastructure so that way they can stay put and live but that's that's again that's outside your your realm so you did have an unprecedented summer what are some of the lessons learned from that summer for this summer well you know hope's not going to be our our plan here um (laughs) Uh, obviously, flexibility. I, I think that the Army did a great job in anticipating using different units so that it wasn't always the same organization. Now, it did help the fact that we went from Alberta to Nova Scotia to Quebec, <laughs> you know, back out to Alberta, then to BC, then the Northwest Territory. So you could move people around and make sure it's not the same people that are occupied for the entire year. Uh, in years past, it, you know, if, if it's a heavy wildfire season in, in British Columbia, then it will be the 3rd Canadian Division and the Joint Task Force out there that carries the brunt of it. So I suppose the lesson that we're trying to do here is make sure that we've got enough flexibility that if we are called out on a regular basis again, we can mitigate training and planning by choosing the right organization Mm-hmm. And then rotating them if required or as mm-hmm. required. It's not always easy to do based on people training for international operations and other things. Of course, one of the big differences between last summer and this summer is we are now ramping up to be having somewhere in the next couple of years more than 2,000 people deployed to Latvia. So does that mean that this summer you have an eye on, okay, well, that unit is going to Latvia, so we'll shield them from these requests as much as we can and have send other units into the into the domestic operations fray to protect that? Or is that just that we're too small? We so, can't so 
Well, no, we do that every year. We've been doing that for years. It's not a lesson learned based on last year. So like even, you know, even when we were rotating and, and sending people to Afghanistan, you still had to have immediate response units for floods and fires here domestically. Mm -hmm. And so those that were either coming back, deployed or preparing for Afghanistan, we still needed other folks on standby. So we do that analysis on a regular basis right across the, the nation to make sure. And it's not just with the army staff, it's, you know, search and rescue, it's, it's patrol aircraft, you know, strategic lift, tactical lift, those type of assets, rotary wing, should we need to. So that type of management that happens on a regular basis within the services and the joint operational uh, command. As we've been talking about the trade-offs, it's been mostly a time thing that it's it's the time out of training. But I guess one of the questions that uh, Canadians don't really, one of the dynamics or aspects that Canadians don't really appreciate is just wear and tear that if you guys are doing an operation, how much of an impact does it make on your fuel budget, how much does an impact make on the lifespan of the helicopters you use, the trucks you use, the equipment? Not obviously you're not you're not expending ammunition, but you're expending all kinds of other stuff. So can you can you speak to that a little bit? How do you how do you mitigate that and what are the challenges of that? Yeah, thanks for that question. And in fact, uh, I'm going to take in a bit of a time warp and move back to 2013. So that way I can talk about a personal experience. So sure. the, the major floods that were happening all across Southern Alberta, I was the commanding officer of the 3rd Battalion PPCLI at the time. And, you know, there, there was all kinds of floods in, in High River, right through Calgary and whatnot. It, it just so happened that we were off doing training. So I was one of the last units to be called out. I got called out to go to Medicine Hat. So I went to Medicine Hat and it was before the water had crested. So I arrived there on a Friday night. They determined that, yes, they're going to call in for military resources. And within hours, I could rent a, a couple or a few buses to bring in hundreds of troops. But for example, the armored squadrons that were attached to me came in their armored vehicles, which goes to your question, is they drove from Edmonton through the night into towards Medicine Hat, you know, what an eight, seven hour road move, eight hour road move. So that on Saturday morning, the downtown of Medicine Hat was flooded with military vehicles, equipment, and all the resources we needed mm -hmm. to spend 48 hours to build up and help protect the town. So whether it be sandbags, the fuel, the wear and tear on the armored vehicles, you know, the logistics and consumables that we needed to set up, all good and all for a good purpose. We saved millions of dollars in infrastructure mm -hmm. and, and damage and businesses downtown Medicine Hat. But that came out of our own operating and maintenance budgets, right? Which doesn't get reimbursed and re replenished. So army problem, got it. It's it's all good and for the right reasons. But those are the second order effects and trade-off that is not seen by the taxpayers, but they actually pay in, in a different way. And let's face it, moving you know a few hundred soldiers by armored vehicle from Edmonton to Medicine Hat is not the most economical way to go about doing it, let alone the emissions. Yeah, so I guess that's one of the questions for the future is how do we do emergency operations in a more sustainable way? You said you had to move all these armored vehicles. Is there what In the future, are we thinking about different ways of, of moving the stuff so that way we're not going on vehicles to get like, you know, I'll use the American standard, like five or 10 miles per gallon, you know, put on vehicles that are, you know, if not hybrid, at least have a better mileage or kilometerage than the average armored vehicle. So here's where it might be entertaining for your listeners if you and I start debating the pros and cons of this, because that's what I mean by fit for purpose. If there's yeah. another organization down the road sure. that is actually built for emergency response, then they can acquire the right vehicles. They yeah. can actually do this more efficiently, and you're not using 
your warfighting capabilities in order to do a domestic response. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, I'll, I'll put a shout out to, you know, one of my former colleagues, uh, Brian Riddell and, and Team Rubicon, which is, I'm sure you're well aware of them, that it's a great organization of volunteers that go out and help out during emergency situations. If we can expand on roles like that, or some emergency department. Heck, I feel so passionate about some of the emergency management and departments that when it's time to take off my uniform, I'd even help set up that type of organization and go work there. Because it is a good purpose and reason, but using, as you say, the armored vehicles and military helicopters isn't necessarily the most efficient way to go about doing it. Yeah, I, I wish I have been pushing for us to develop a FEMA kind of organization, but right now the one organization in Canada has got a lot of equipment, a lot of young people, to throw at an emergency is yours. Nobody else has literally thousands of people who are of the right physical capacity. And, you know, they have a day job, but it's a day job that, that is flexible as compared to a desk job in Ottawa or whatever else. So you're kind of stuck with it for now. I'm reminded of a, a passage in, in David Petraeus's counterinsurgency playbook, which is, there are all these things in counterinsurgency that are the jobs of civilians, but they're inevitably not going to show up. And so therefore, it's on us to do these things if nobody else does them. And the challenge in Canada is that I, I just don't see somebody stepping up and providing that federal emergency agency anytime too soon. So um, you guys are, you know, are stuck. Perhaps so. No, I mean, short-term planning, I, I agree. We're, we have to be prepared to do that. That doesn't mean we can't start planning or looking to the future and develop something because simultaneously it is the same force you're going to be asked to potentially respond when crises like what's going on in Israel and around the world. And if we had to evacuate Canadian citizens out of adjacent countries, it's the same folks and the same mm. assets that need to be prepared for that. So if they're tied up otherwise, we're not prepared to the level that they should be, then we've got catastrophic failure and we're the only ones that are trained and equipped to do those type of responses. Others can be equipped and trained to put out fires. Absolutely. And it's too bad. we're going to probably release this podcast after the new year, but our year ahead event on December 7th has a panel directly addressing evacuation. What are the lessons we learned from Afghanistan, Sudan, and other situations, which was supposed to be aimed at the future, but is actually really now aimed at the present, given what's going on, that very much, you know, that we have had to evacuate some people from uh, Israel and Palestine, and, and we may end up having to evacuate more people from the region if this thing escalates. So I'm sure that stuff keeps you up at night. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, those are part of the plans and those are the portfolios that we look at, especially in my my current job as Director General of Plans. And that is a force of last resort that we will not fail on. We need to be ready on behalf of the government and Canadians. Well, I really appreciate the time you had to speak with us about this. It was great to talk with you at KCIS a few months ago, and we're glad that we had a chance to do this today. And I look forward to chatting with you in the future in this gig and whatever your next gig happens to be. All right. Appreciate the time, Steve, and uh, good luck to you.